Today is part four of four in a series called Reformed. And in this series, we have been looking at a Reformation movement that began 500 years ago. It spread across Europe and it changed the world. And that's not an exaggeration. It changed the world. The catalyst for that movement was the posting of 95 statements on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. And the name of the person who posted them is Martin Luther. And we're going to come back to that name in a little bit. So remember that one in, in your head there. Well, in week one of the series, we talked about Jesus of Nazareth. And I did the best job I could with the time I had to paint this vision that he had for a people, for a new community. Jesus envisioned a community of people whose lives weren't ordered around empty religion but a people who are truly and authentically guided by what they called the word of God, the word of God. They were guided by these scriptures that they believed were holy. They were guided by what they believed was the voice of God that they could access. They were guided by his Holy spirit through each other and even through God's creation. Well, Jesus envisioned that these people who were guided by God's word would live differently that if people would see things in them that they didn't see in the world around them. He envisioned a people who loved one another like no one else loved one another. He envisioned a people who served others like no one else served. He envisioned a people who were marked by integrity and compassion and generosity and peace and joy and even hope. And Jesus spoke of this new community as his bride. As his bride. But by the 16th century, the reason this reformation was needed is the church leaders lost their way. And those who were leading the church were now conforming more and more to the culture around them rather than to the example of Christ who founded the movement to begin with. Well, this Luther that I referenced earlier, he rediscovered the vision. He rediscovered the vision that Jesus had entrusted to the first century followers. These were the people that he handed the keys of the church to. He entrusted this vision that I described earlier to them. And Luther said, what we're doing right now isn't that. It's not that. And so he posted his opinions for the world to see. Now, he didn't have Twitter, but if he did, if he did, his tweets might look like this. And, and there's certain things I just can't share in this audience that he said. These are some of the tame ones. But here are two things. He really said these things. Here's one example. He said, even the Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to the Pope's wickedness. People who said stuff like that got killed back then. Here's another one. These are his words. I... They're unedited except they're translated into English. That's the only difference here. All right, so here's another one. And the background for this is in the 16th century, if you were a priest, if you were a monk, you could not get married. That was the rule. And so he wrote this. After, in 1525, he got married, and he didn't just get married. He married a former nun. And he wrote this. He said, my marriage to Katharina will please my father, tease the pope, and vex the devil. He wasn't afraid to call people out. He was calling them out. You should see the pictures that these guys were sending back and forth. It was horrible.
horrible. Was, and I'm serious. Look at that. So he wasn't afraid to call people out. Luther called out the Pope. Luther called out parishioners. Luther called out preachers. And I believe that the words he's speaking that you're about to see that he called out preachers with, these were guys who were other reformers. And this is what he said to them. This is more than 120 characters, so we don't have it forward, forward, uh, formatted the same way. He says this. This is a direct quote. Some preachers are lazy and no good. They do not pray. They do not study. They do not read. They do not search the scripture. You cannot read too much in scripture. What you read, you cannot read too carefully. What you read carefully, you cannot understand too well. What you understand too well, you cannot teach too well. What you teach too well, you cannot live too well. Therefore, dear pastors and preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. This evil, shameful time is no reason for being lazy, for sleeping and snoring. Woo! I know, that was a, okay, wake up. Well, in the medieval church, there were countless things that needed reform. It was really easy for him to fire off these tweets because it was a big old target, Right? I want to encourage you to write this down because the same is true today. Same is true today. I want to encourage you to write this down. If you're a note taker, we provided an outline of where we're going here today. And I'd encourage you to write this down. It is easy to post cynical remarks about churches. And why is it easy to post cynical remarks about churches? Because churches are made up of people like you and like me. And we are easy targets. Which brings us then to the next question. I'd encourage you to write this one down too. This is a question we need to ask. Today is the last in this series. We've got to ask this question before we move on. What cynical remarks could churches post about you? It wouldn't be very hard, would it, for a church to look at your life and look at all the things we're called to and say, aha, aha, right? Even the most sincere, even the most compassionate, even the most faithful among us are easy targets. Why? Because perfection is out of reach. We cannot be perfect in all things. And let me present to you, it'd be really boring if we could, wouldn't it? Well, before we move on to our Christmas series, which is next week. Next week. Thanksgiving is Thursday, by the way. (laughs) Wow. All right. Well, before we move on to our Advent series, we need to press into us that second question that I gave you. And not with the unrealistic expectation that we'll ever be perfect, but the goal here is to become more like Jesus. The goal is to become more like Jesus, a little more each day. And I don't know if it, when the last time was, is when, when I've answered the question, why? Why Jesus? Why would we want to become more like him? Let me give you my best two-minute shot at this. Because Jesus lived a life worth imitating. He did. Jesus never engaged in empty religion which is the trap we can fall into. Everything he did, it came out of an authentic walk with God. And as a result, Jesus was able to teach and pray. And he lived with a conviction and an authority that, and an otherworldly power that left even his critics amazed. Jesus developed the kind of relationships that most of us long to experience. He exhibited the kind of courage and compassion that we long to demonstrate. He left a legacy that literally divided history in two. And there has never been a person 
who lived with greater integrity. And the type of integrity I'm talking about right now is the integrity that means there's no inconsistency. You are who you say you are. He modeled that. He lived that. Everything he did, I would present. His words and his deeds are worthy of a careful look. If we're going to discover what it means to live a God-honoring life, we've got to mature beyond throwing stones from glass houses and take an honest look in the mirror. And what we're going to press into today is this. I'd encourage you to, to write this down as we bring this series of, about Reformation to a close. We've got to press into this. One of the Reformation's key rediscoveries. These guys didn't make this up. They didn't discover it for the first time. This was there all along. One of the Reformation's key rediscoveries was a call to holistic holiness. Holistic holiness. The first century faithful, followers of Jesus that he handed the keys to, they did the church stuff and they did it well. They gathered for weekly worship. They read and discussed the scriptures. They prayed, they fasted, they offered their first and best to God. The first century faithful did a whole lot of things that we normally associate with church. And, and the first century faithful the people that Jesus handed the keys of the church to. In addition to that, they challenged one another to that life of integrity where there wasn't a disconnect between the person who went to church and the person who was going about their day. By the 16th century, the medieval church was no longer even equipping people for that. Not only they weren't challenging, they weren't equipping people to integrate their faith into every area of their life. And Martin Luther was one of the first people to call this out as he rediscovered that the call to follow Jesus is this call to holistic holiness. That rediscovery later on became known as the Protestant work ethic because these reformers, these protesters began to say, this should go into every aspect of our life. Everything we do. And chapter 9 of that book that I've been recommending throughout the series does an outstanding job of pressing into this concept that we're talking about now. If you picked up the book and haven't gotten to it yet, just read chapter 9. Just read chapter 9. We get the English word vocation from a Latin word meaning calling. Calling. That's what vocations were meant to be, our callings. Some people are called to be pastors or priests. Most people aren't, but everybody has a vocation that you're called to. And it's not just in the workplace. It's broader than that. Luther, he referred, I love this. Luther referred to all of our vocations as the masks of God. The masks of God. And he said this, God provides food through the farmers. God, who honor their calling. God provides healing through the doctors who honor their calling. God provides education through teachers who honor their calling. God provides wages and goods and services through business owners and through employees who honor their calling. And God equips the next generation through parents who honor their calling. Now, along those lines of marriage and family, there are those who believe that Luther's wedding day 
was as significant to world history as his posting of the 95 Theses. Why? Because in the 16th century, they had devalued the role of women. They had devalued marriage. They had devalued love and relationships and all these things. And Luther was one of the voices to step up and say, read what the scriptures say for themselves. Look at the original texts. Look what the Bible says about men and women, love and marriage and raising kids. Luther was not a fan, not a fan of priests and monks who would withdraw from society and just work on their own private holiness off in some corner. He was not a fan of that. In fact, he would argue and did that a Christian parent fulfilling their vocation by changing their baby's diapers was doing a holier work than a monastery full of priests and monks if all they did was, quote, sing themselves to death. He would have tweeted that because it was his own words. The same would be true, he would say, for any vocation where you're honoring the name that God gives us. Luther helped to popularize a paradigm called the priesthood of all believers. And the book that I recommended did a great job of saying, let's, let's think about what's being said here. Because often we um, take the word priest and, we, and we, we translate that into pastor. Pastor and priest are two different things. And we're told that Jesus was the perfect priest. What did a priest do? A priest offered up a sacrifice. The priesthood of all believers. Now link that with vocation. And follow that to its natural conclusion. When Jesus came in and he was the perfect priest, he, I, I don't see the, the examples where he offered up the animal sacrifices. I see where he lived a life that was a sacrificial offering unto God. We honor the name of Jesus Christ when we sacrifice our pride and when we sacrifice our selfish desires in our vocations for a greater purpose. When we use those vocations to serve others and care for others. Well, there is a passage of scripture that I'd like us to look at today as we close out the series. Because it summarizes everything we've talked about. But what it also does is that it really makes these points practical and drives them home. So if you have your Bibles with you today, let's look at the book of Colossians. We're going to start in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can just leave them open. Because we're just going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 today as much as we have time to cover here. I want to let you know as you're opening up your Bible, if you don't have one at home, we'd love to give you free uh, one today. We, we keep them there at those tables. We encourage you to, to take one as, as you go home. I also want to reference something here too that I've referenced before. One of the reasons I love, love, love this section of the Bible where there's these letters that come from, a lot of them come from this guy named Paul. One of the things I love about them is that they were not written in some ivory tower. They, they, this is not somebody in a trendy coffee shop just coming up with ideas that sound good to them. This is hard-won wisdom. This is coming from prison. There is no fluff here. These are the things that this guy was willing to say, I will lay down my life for this because this is the revelation that came from God. This is linked to all of the scriptures that came before it. And I've seen this is what works. This is what's changing the world. Not some whatever. So, sorry about that. No, I'm not sorry about that commentary. Here we go. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. He says this. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or, and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to whom? Christ. That's where the substance is. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions, puffed up by reason, by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth. What kind of growth he's talking about here? A growth that is from God. That's the growth that he says. Let's target that kind of growth. And then jumping ahead to verse 20, he says this, if with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, really nobody talks like this anymore. And so if you're having a hard time tracking with it, I've been able to live in this verse all week. Um, The summary that I would give you is what he's saying here is don't waste your time with empty religion. I think that's a pretty fair summary of what he just said. Don't waste your time with empty religion. By the 16th century, church leaders were doing the opposite. They were indulging in new religious add-ons. In contrast to that, in contrast to the 16th century church, the first century faithful, they abandoned everything except the essentials. If it didn't bring you closer to Christ, if I'm going to die for this stuff, I'm not going to die for something that isn't worth dying for. Give me the real stuff. What's the stuff that's going to help me be more like that guy that rose from the dead? That's what I want, right? And so they're like, forget all of the non-essentials. What are the essentials? Let's not waste our time with anything that is empty. It's of no value. Now, there's a place to write this in your notes because we're going to turn an important corner here. Because we've been talking about empty religion. Forget empty religion. Throw it away. But here's something really important. I encourage you to write this down. God wants us to identify and avoid the pitfalls of religious indulgences. And, and God wants, us to, wants to help us identify and avoid the pitfalls of worldly indulgences too. This is a both and. This is so important. If you've been drifting... Tune back in, because this, this is so important. Because here's what happens. If there's a devil, and I believe there is, one of the things he loves to do is to give people false dichotomies. It's A or it's B. And, and in this case, one of the A's and B's that, that are so true in our culture is you see this. He says, all right, empty religion is wrong, right? So your choice then is to have your freestyle faith. Because God's just going to forgive you anyway or, or whatever. That's not the choice that the scripture presents. And you can choose to believe that, but then at least be honest with yourself. You're making up something new. You're making up your own religion. So you can do that. Just don't call it Christianity. That's not fair. Take a look at what the scriptures themselves say. And and that's not the choice that they give you. The scripture says, abandon empty religion, of course, and follow Jesus. 
for real. Follow him. And, and I'll show you. This, this comes, what we're about to show you right now, comes before what we read about empty religion. Before Paul ever gets into saying, discard empty religion, he, he says this. This is in chapter 2, but it starts in verse 6. He says to these people from prison, therefore, as you received Christ as the Lord, meaning in charge of everything, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. Remember that word, because we're going to see this come up several times today, and I didn't plan that. I wish I would have. Oh, yeah, Thanksgiving's coming up. Oh, I'd forgotten Thanksgiving was coming up. All right, so here, moving on to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, I wish we had more time today, because I was digging into this text, and there was some really interesting stuff there from the original Greek. Some of the things I never heard before. One of the things that, that happens here in the original Greek is the language that's used when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. The language that's there in the original Greek, it, it paints a picture. It paints a picture. And the picture that it paints in this situation, it says, don't let anyone, um, anyone hijack your cargo. The language that's used in the original Greek is, is, paints this picture of someone who's plundering cargo from a ship which then paints this picture that there's an intended destination for us. This destination that God wants us to arrive at in this life and the next. He has purposes and plans like that cargo for us. And there's people, there's people that want to break in. And they want to take that captive to their vision. And they want to take that captive to their purpose. And they want to hijack this instead of its intended destination to some other place or some other thing where we serve other purposes. Well, as I read these words, and as I've been reading the words of Luther throughout this series, I see a whole lot of parallels between the Apostle Paul and Luther. I see two men who were both amazed by grace because they both were living under religious oppression. And that's not too strong of a word. They were living under religious oppression. And when they saw that they could jettison the religious rituals that weren't helpful, oh, there was this freedom. They were awakened to an amazing grace. And rather than just having this freedom to do whatever they want, they recognized that out of response to this, he set me free. I want more of that. I want to learn more from this, this God who is so good as to set me free. Then that must mean he's got other good things for me. So if he's got guardrails, if he's got boundaries, I want to be within them because I can trust him. And so they set out, and both of these two men, who, who nobody's done more to speak about grace, they also, both of them, called us to this holistic holiness, where we trust God with every area of our life. When Luther taught teachers, he taught them that authentic Bible teaching must always have two elements, the law and the gospel. Luther believed that we can't know God without both. In fact, he used to call the law a hammer. He called the law a hammer. And it must be used, he said, to smash smugness and to smash indifference. Here's how he put it in his own words. He said this, Today, you may encounter many who are offended by the necessary preaching of the law and shun it. When they hear sins censured, they are offended and do not want their consciences 
burdened. Shall we for this reason let everyone do what he pleases and declare them blessed? Do you see that word today that this started with? If Luther would have tweeted this today, would that still be relevant? Absolutely. And I'm not talking about people out there by us. There are things that if you, if you are serious about diving into the scripture, you are going to see things you don't understand. I do every time almost I turn to the Bible. You're going to see things you wish weren't there. You're going to see things that you feel like you have to apologize for. There's a lot of that in there. And we are so tempted, aren't we, to shun that? Let's not talk about that. Censor it. Wow. If we're going to be people of integrity, if you're a person in here and you say, I want to identify as a Christian, if we're going to do that with integrity, then we can't just ignore the things that are hard. There's a big difference between believing in a God that conforms to our expectations and authentically following Jesus of Nazareth. Colossians chapter 3 now is really helpful. Let's turn there. Because in Colossians chapter 3, what Paul says now after kind of laying out some of the philosophy, he says, here's some specific examples. And he has them broken into two categories, which is kind of neat, because sometimes he really rambles all over the place through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So it's going somewhere. I just got myself in a theological pit, so let's dig out quick back to the text. He, he, He puts it into two categories. He says, let's first talk about some things that we shouldn't do, and then let's talk about some things that we should do. So let's start with the shouldn'ts, because that's where he starts. He says this in Colossians 3, starting with verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these things you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. So there's some examples of some things to put off, to put to death. And then right after that, he says, now here's some things to put on. Here's some things that should categorize us and characterize us as God's people. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be what be thankful. There's that word again. And we're going to see it show up two more times in the next two verses, which begs a question. Why should we be thankful when God's putting boundaries in place? Unless those boundaries were a good thing. May I present to you that godly guardrails are designed to help us experience the kind of life that God intended. And we were created for because we can miss it. We can miss it. As life is just going at the speed it goes, we can miss it. And I was reminded of that at a school play. A school play I saw this weekend. Uh, my 15-year-old is in, uh, in a play at her school called Our Town. How many of you have either read Our Town or seen it? 
right. I hadn't. I hadn't. And so we went to see this play, and Act 1 commences, and they're doing a great job. And at the end of Act 1, my 13-year-old leans over to me because they said, now we're having an intermission. They just kind of told, like, a bunch of stuff, and then we're having a mission. We're kind of like, she leans over, and she goes, isn't there supposed to be a plot? And, and I'm, you know, I tried to say some nice things, and, and then came Act 2, and there's still no plot. <laughs> they're just, like, going through life and just doing everyday things in this small town. And I'll be honest with you. I'm thinking, you're doing a great job up there. All of you are acting. And I have no idea how this play got out of the 1930s because <laughs> there is no plot and I don't get it. And then came act three, the final act. And I don't mind giving you a spoiler because this is an 80-year-old play. And if you haven't <laughs> seen it by now, I, I just don't feel guilty, you know? So I won't give all the details, but there's a twist. There's a twist in act three. And now it makes total sense why they had you sit through normalcy for two acts. Because the twist was basically that we're missing moments. And they have this scene that takes place in a cemetery where all of a sudden you realize we are just allowing the beauty of each day the miracle of each day just passes by. It was so good. I was tearing up in Act 3. Man, I had to apologize to everybody sitting around me. Everything was just crazy. Christianity. Christianity. As Jesus modeled it, as Jesus taught it, as the first century followers point us to, it is a life where we make the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity. Where we can worship as we see a beautiful sunrise. Where we can experience God's presence among us wherever two or more are gathered. Here's what it says in Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or indeed, at church, at home, at school, at work, on an airplane, in a bus. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't our world be a better place if all of those who claim his name would aim for that target? Even aim for it. You know, I just finished a book by um, the HR guy from Google, and he said, you know, we're not going to penalize people at Google who aim for the stars and hit the moon. If more of us aim for that star, everything, the world would be a better place. Luther put it this way. I love this. He says, if you're a manual laborer, you find that the Bible, it's been put in your workshop. 
into your hand, into your heart. It teaches and it preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Just look at your tools, your needle, your thimble, your beer barrel, your goods, your scales, your yardstick or measure. Nothing that you handle every day is so tiny that it does not continually tell you this. If you what? If you only listen. Listen. That is first century faith right there. Here's a really important question then. As we begin to close out this series. Is your life trending towards first century faith or 16th century faith? Which way is it trending? And let me start by telling you the spirit behind this question. The spirit behind this question is not asked with a finger pointing towards you. It's asked as someone else who would love, love, love to see more of that experience in our midst together. If we all pursued this. Because that vision that Jesus painted was a beautiful vision. In the 16th century, that wasn't the vision. In the 16th century, you had two choices, basically. One choice was, if you really wanted to try to follow God 24-7, you became a monk. That was it. And you practiced that faith off in some place where you weren't distracted by all those worldly people. That was choice number one. Is that the vision that Jesus had for his people? No. No. Except for little moments in time. Second choice. 16th century was this. You would attend the mass and then you would go home. And those are two very different things. What you experienced at the mass and what you lived out at home were very, very separate. Is that the picture that Jesus cast, the vision that he cast for his church where we would experience one thing on Sunday and then the rest of our week looked very, very different? The reformers pointed us back to Jesus' vision If we're going to walk as Jesus walked, then there's some things that we put to death. And it's not easy, but we trust him and we do what it takes with his help to do that. To delete what we should delete, to throw away what we should throw away, and to overcome the bad habits that we shouldn't have. I'm not saying that's easy. That's the target. Aim for it. And if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, then we have all these great opportunities, things we can put on. Or we can get serious about putting on that mask of God. And in our vocations, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, we say, how can I be God with a mask on? That would be a great question to talk about today over lunch. Maybe after the Vikings game. Right? That might be a great conversation to, 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 reflect, to reflect on just with yourself and the Holy Spirit. It might be a great conversation to have in your small church. What could that look like? To live as God with a mask on. And then that whole thing that he said about, look around you, what are your tools? How could each of those things be something that is used for the glory of God? Not easy to, uh, to not see that when you have a pickup truck. <laughs> I was talking to a family ahead of time with a minivan. There's all kinds of ways to use those. Many of you, you open up your homes, you open up your cabins, your boats. Think about how you could use those devices in your hands to send encouraging words, life-giving words. When it snows... That snow shovel is screaming out all kinds of ways you could use it for the glory of God. I was even thinking about dogs. You know, dogs can be, a, can be a blessing. You could use that dog in a retirement community or whatever. Well, some dogs, you could. <laughs> There's countless ways, right? Countless ways. We can serve God through our vocations. We can serve God with these things that we have. And that is the life where we really come alive. 
the last set of blanks I have for this entire series here is this. Are you all in? All in. When it comes to aligning your beliefs and behaviors with the word of God. He wants to help you navigate life really, really well. And I'll tell you one more thing as we invite the worship band to come up. He wants you to navigate this well. And he knows you're going to fall short in the process. Every one of us will. When you aim for the stars, there's going to be times you don't even hit the moon. You kind of crash on takeoff. He knows that. And how do I, why can I say it with such confidence? Because look at Luther. Here is a guy that, if you really study him, he said a whole lot of things that he never should have said. He did a whole lot of things he never should have done. And guess what? God used him. God used him. Here's what a contemporary was saying about Luther. And this is not a Catholic contemporary. This is somebody who is like part of team reformation said this about Luther after he died. He says, I know how many people hate Luther. And yet the fact remains, God loves him very much and never gave us a holier and more effective instrument of the gospel. Luther had his shortcomings. In fact, serious ones. But God bore them and put up with them, never granting another mortal a mightier spirit and such divine power to proclaim his son and strike down the Antichrist. God knit Luther together and he gave him a passion and he gave him a strength and he gave him a boldness and he gave him a desire to learn and to be real. And it was those same things that he used to break through. And it was those same things that Busted up all kinds of other things all around him. You have your own strengths. You have your own God-given gifts. He has put you where he has put you for a reason. He's entrusted you with resources. Now we get to go forth and discover what a day could look like if we invited him into all of it. Let's pray as we close out this series. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reformers, not just the ones from the 16th century, But people like Paul who started working towards reform before the ink was even drying on the pages of the New Testament. Father, we're so thankful for people who inspire us to seek truth. And Lord, we pray that we would be people like that. Lord, we're so thankful for your amazing grace where you you, you can smile and you can say, well done when we attempt and don't succeed. Lord, inspire us, change us, help us to become people who truly are born again with new hearts and new minds that get it, that get that life is better lived the more we trust of it to you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are gathered in this room who are trying so hard to live lives that honor you. Lord, help them to have your peace and your joy as they do. Help them to be able to laugh at themselves. Help all of us to be able to laugh with one another as we stumble our way through life. Help there to be lots of grace, lots of forgiveness, lots of cheering one another on as we do our best to aim for those stars. And now, Lord, help us to seal this series with this song. In Jesus' name, amen.